Section two of A History of Our Own Times, Volume three by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter thirty The Lorcha Arrow, Part two. This news from China created a considerable sensation in England, although not many public men had any idea of the manner in which it was destined to affect the House of Commons. On February twenty fourth, eighteen fifty seven, Lord Derby brought forward in the House of Lords a motion comprehensively condemning the whole of the proceedings of the British authorities in China. The debate would have been memorable if only for the powerful speech in which the venerable Lord Lyndhurst supported the motion and exposed the utter illegality of the course pursued by Sir John Bowring. Lord Lyndhurst declared that the proceedings of the British authorities could not be justified upon any principle, either of law or of reason, that the arrow was simply a Chinese vessel, built in China and owned and manned by Chinamen, and he laid it down as a principle which no one will successfully contest, that you may give any rights or privileges to a foreigner or a foreign vessel as against yourself, but you cannot grant to any such foreigner a single right or privilege as against a foreign state. In other words, if the British authorities chose to give a British license to a Chinese pirate boat, which would secure her some immunity against British law, that would be altogether an affair for themselves and their government. But they could not pretend by any British register or other document to give a Chinese boat in Chinese waters a right of exemption from the laws of China. Perhaps the whole question never could have arisen if it were not for the fact on which Lord Lyndhurst commented that when we are talking of treaty transactions with Eastern nations, we have a kind of loose law and loose notion of morality in regard to them. The question as to the right conferred by the license, such as it was, to hoist the British flag, could not have been disposed of more effectually than it was by the Chinese governor Ye himself in a single sentence. A lorcha, as Lay put it, owned by a Chinese, purchased a British flag. Did that make her a British vessel? The Lord Chancellor was actually driven to answer Lord Lyndhurst by contending that no matter whether the lorcha was legally or illegally flying the British flag, it was not for the Chinese to assume that she was flying it illegally, and that they had no right to board the vessel on the assumption that she was not what she pretended to be. To show the value of that argument, it is only necessary to say that if such were the recognized principle, every pirate in the Canton River would have nothing further to do than to hoist any old scrap of British bunting and sail on, defiant under the very eyes of the Chinese authorities. The governor of Canton would be compelled to make a formal complaint to Sir John Bowring, and trust, meanwhile, that a spirit of fair play would induce the pirates to wait for a formal investigation by the British authorities. Otherwise, neither Chinese nor British could take any steps to capture the offenders. The House of Lords rejected the motion of Lord Derby by a majority of 146 to 110. On February 26th, Mr. Cobden brought forward a motion in the House of Commons, declaring that the papers which have been laid upon the table fail to establish satisfactory grounds for the violent measures resorted to at Canton in the late affair of the Arrow. 
and demanding that a select committee be appointed to inquire into the state of our commercial relations with china this must have been a peculiarly painful task for mr cobden he was an old friend of sir john bowring with whom he had always supposed himself to have many or most opinions in common but he followed his convictions as to public duty in despite of his personal friendship it is a curious evidence of the manner in which the moral principles become distorted in a political contest that during the subsequent elections it was actually made a matter of reproach to mr cobden that while acknowledging his old friendship for sir john bowring he was nevertheless found ready to move a vote of censure on his public conduct the debate was remarkable more for the singular political combination which it developed as it went on than even for its very debility and eloquence men spoke and voted on the same side who had probably never been brought into such companionship before and never were afterwards mr cobden found himself supported by mr gladstone and mr disraeli by mr roebuck and sir e b lytton by lord john russell and mr whiteside by lord robert cecil afterwards the marquis of salisbury sir frederick thesiger mr roundell palmer afterwards lord selborne mr sidney herbert and mr milner gibson the discussion lasted four nights and it was only as it went on that men's eyes began to open to its political importance mr cobden had probably never dreamed of the amount or the nature of the support his motion was destined to receive the government and the opposition alike held meetings out of doors to agree upon a general line of action in the debate and to prepare for the result lord palmerston was convinced that he would come all right in the end but he felt that he had made himself obnoxious to the advanced liberals by his indifference or rather hostility to every project of reform and he persuaded himself that the opportunity would be eagerly caught at by them to make a combination with the tories against him in all this he was deceiving himself as he had done more than once before there is not the slightest reason to believe that anything but a growing conviction of the insufficiency of the defence set up for the proceedings in canton influenced the great majority of those who spoke and voted for mr cobden's motion the truth is that there has seldom been so flagrant and so inexcusable an example of high-handed lawlessness in the dealings of a strong with a weak nation when the debate first began it was quite possible that many public men still believed some explanation or defence was coming forward which would enable them to do that which the house of commons is always unwilling not to do to sustain the action of an english official in a foreign country as the discussion went on it became more and more evident that there was no such defence or explanation men found their consciences coerced into a condemnation of sir john bowring's conduct it was almost ludicrous when the miserable quibblings and evasions of the british officials came to be contrasted with the cruelly clear arguments of the chinese the reading of these latter documents came like a practical enforcement of mr cobden's description of the chinese empire as a state which had its system of logic before the time of aristotle and its code of morals before that of socrates the vote of censure was carried by two hundred and sixty-three votes against two hundred and forty-seven a majority of sixteen mr disraeli in the course of a clever and defiant speech made toward the close of the long debate 
had challenged lord palmerston to take the opinion of the country on the policy of the government i should like he exclaimed to see the programme of the proud leaders of the liberal party no reform new taxes canton blazing peking invaded lord palmerston's answer was virtually that of brutus why i will see thee at philippi then he announced two or three days after that the government had resolved on a dissolution and an appeal to the country lord palmerston knew his pappenheimers he understood his countrymen he knew that a popular minister makes himself more popular by appealing to the country on the ground that he has been condemned by the house of commons for upholding the honour of england and coercing some foreign power somewhere his address to the electors of tiverton differed curiously in its plan of appeal from that of lord john russell to the electors of the city or that of mr disraeli to those of buckinghamshire lord john russell coolly and wisely argued out the controversy between him and lord palmerston and gave very satisfactory reasons to prove that there was no sufficient justification for the bombardment of canton mr disraeli described lord palmerston as the tory chief of a radical cabinet and declared that with no domestic policy he is obliged to divert the attention of the people from the consideration of their own affairs to the distractions of foreign politics his external system is turbulent and aggressive that his rule at home may be tranquil and unassailed in later days a charge not altogether unlike that was made against an english prime minister who was not lord palmerston lord palmerston understood the temper of the country too well to trouble himself about arguments of any kind he came to the point at once in his address to the electors of tiverton he declared that an insolent barbarian wielding authority at canton violated the british flag broke the engagements of treaties offered rewards for the heads of british subjects in that part of china and planned their destruction by murder assassination and poison that of course was all sufficient the insolent barbarian was in itself almost enough governor ye certainly was not a barbarian his argument on the subject of international law obtained the endorsement of lord lyndhurst his way of arguing the political and commercial case compelled the admiration of lord derby his letters form a curious contrast to the documents contributed to the controversy by the representatives of british authority in china however he became for electioneering purposes an insolent barbarian and the story of a chinese baker who was said to have tried to poison sir john bowring became transfigured into an attempt at the wholesale poisoning of englishmen in china by the express orders of the chinese governor lord palmerston further intimated that he and his government had been censured by a combination of factious persons who if they got into power and were prepared to be consistent must apologize to the chinese government and offer compensation to the chinese commissioner will the british nation he asked give their support to men who have thus endeavoured to make the humiliation and degradation of their country the stepping-stone to power no to be sure the british nation would do nothing of the kind lord derby lord lyndhurst mr gladstone mr cobden mr disraeli sir e b lytton lord grey lord robert cecil these were the craven englishmen devoid of all patriotic or manly feeling who were trying to make the humiliation and degradation of their country a stepping-stone to power 
they were likewise the friends and allies of the insolent barbarian there were no music halls of the modern type in those days had there been such the denunciations of the insolent barbarian and of his still baser british friends would no doubt have been shouted forth night after night in the metropolis to the accompaniment of rattling glasses and clattering pint-pots even without the alliance of the music halls however lord palmerston swept the field of his enemies his victory was complete the defeat of the men of peace in especial was what mr ruskin once called not a fall but a catastrophe cobden bright milner gibson w j fox layard and many other leading opponents of the chinese policy were left without seats there was something peculiarly painful in the circumstances of mr bright's defeat at manchester mr bright was suffering from severe illness in the opinion of many of his friends his health was thoroughly broken he had worked in public life with a generous disregard of his physical resources and he was compelled to leave the country and seek rest first in italy and afterwards in algeria it was not a time when even political enmity could with a good grace have ventured to visit on him the supposed offences of his party but the insolent barbarian phrase overthrew him too he sent home from florence a farewell address to the electors of manchester which was full of quiet dignity i have esteemed it a high honour thus ran one passage of the address to be one of your representatives and have given more of mental and physical labour to your service than is just to myself i feel it scarcely less an honour to suffer in the cause of peace and on behalf of what i believe to be the true interests of my country though i could have wished that the blow had come from other hands at a time when i could have met face to face those who dealt it not long after mr cobden one of the least sentimental and the most unaffected of men speaking in the manchester free trade hall of the circumstances of mr bright's rejection from manchester and the leave-taking address which so many regarded as the last public word of a great career found himself unable to go on with that part of his speech an emotion more honourable to the speaker and his subject than the most elaborate triumph of eloquence checked the flow of the orator's words and for the moment made him inarticulate lord palmerston came back to power with renewed and redoubled strength the little war with persia which will be mentioned afterwards came to an end in time to give him another claim as a conqueror on the sympathies of the constituencies his appointments of bishops had given great satisfaction to the evangelical party and he had become for the time quite a sort of church hero much to the amusement of lord derby who made great sport of palmerston the true protestant palmerston the only christian prime minister in the royal speech at the opening of parliament it was announced that the differences between this country and china still remained unadjusted and that therefore her majesty has sent to china a plenipotentiary fully entrusted to deal with all matters of difference and that plenipotentiary will be supported by an adequate naval and military force in the event of such assistance becoming necessary it would be almost superfluous to say that the assistance of the naval and military force thus suggested was found to be necessary the government however had more serious business with which to occupy themselves before they were at liberty to turn to the easy work of coercing the chinese 
the new parliament was engaged for some time in passing the act for the establishment of a court of divorce that is to say abolishing the ancient jurisdiction of the ecclesiastical courts respecting divorce and setting up a regular court of law the divorce and matrimonial causes court to deal with questions between husband and wife the passing of the divorce act was strongly contested in both houses of parliament and indeed was secured at last only by lord palmerston's intimating very significantly that he would keep the houses sitting until the measure had been disposed of mr gladstone in particular offered to the bill a most strenuous opposition he condemned it on strictly conscientious grounds yet it has to be said even as a question of conscience that there was divorce in england before the passing of the act the only difference being that the act made divorce somewhat cheap and rather easy before it was the luxury of the rich the act brought it within the reach of almost the poorest of her majesty's subjects we confess that we do not see how any great moral or religious principle is violated in the one case any more than in the other the question at issue was not whether divorce should be allowed by the law but only whether it should be high-priced or comparatively inexpensive it is certainly a public advantage as it seems to us that the change in the law has put an end to the debates that used to take place in both houses of parliament when any important bill of divorce was under discussion the members crowded the house the case was discussed in all its details as any clause in a bill is now debated long speeches were made by those who thought the divorce ought to be granted and those who thought the contrary and the time of parliament was occupied in the edifying discussion as to whether some unhappy woman's shame was or was not clearly established in one famous case where a distinguished peer orator and statesman sought a divorce from his wife every point of the evidence was debated in parliament for night after night members spoke in the debate who had known nothing of the case until the bill came before them one member perhaps was taken with a vague sympathy with the wife he set about to show that the evidence against her proved nothing another sympathized with husbands in general and made it his business to emphasize every point that told of guilt in the woman more than one earnest speaker during those debates expressed an ardent hope that the time might come when parliament should be relieved from the duty of undertaking such unsuitable and scandalous investigations it must be owned that public decency suffers less by the regulated action of the divorce court than it did under this preposterous and abominable system we cannot help adding too that the divorce act judging by the public use made of it certainly must be held to have justified itself in a merely practical sense it seems to have been thoroughly appreciated by a grateful public it was not easy after a while to get judicial power enough to keep the supply of divorces up to the ever-increasing demand lord palmerston then appears to be furnished with an entirely new lease of power the little persian war has been brought to a close the country is not disposed to listen to any complaint as to the manner in which it was undertaken the settlement of the dispute with china promised to be an easy piece of business the peace party were everywhere overthrown no one could well have anticipated that within less than a year from the general election a motion made in the house of commons by one whom it unseated 
was to compel the government of Lord Palmerston suddenly to resign office. End of section two.